Well, let's take the Word of God this evening and turn with me to the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms, and we'll begin in uh, the very first Psalm. And uh, the goal as we uh, think about our Wednesday meeting is to uh, go back and forth uh, between uh, the book of Psalms and uh, the book of Proverbs, and I'll mention a few things about that in just a moment. But in Psalm 1, before we begin reading here, the book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs, although very distinct books, uh, actually go very well together. Uh, while Proverbs teaches us how to be wise, Psalm, Psalms teaches us how to worship. Um, you will note that Psalms comes before Proverbs. And in the book of Psalms, we learn uh, about the love of God, while in the book of Proverbs, we learn to live for God. The book of Psalms is primarily a spiritual book, while the book of Proverbs is primarily a practical book. Uh, living our lives by the book of Proverbs, we will understand, is only possible when we first learn to live like the psalmist. Uh, so the entire book of Proverbs is, we know, uh, predicated on the fear of God. And where is the fear of God learned? Well, I believe it is learned in the book of Psalms. And so there's not really a whole lot that is descriptive. Proverbs just tells us the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. Well, where do we learn that fear? Where do we learn to have that reverential fear and love for God? It is found in the book of Psalms. Uh, we're going to find throughout the book of Psalms much prophecy is found in this book. Uh, the book of Psalms is quoted more frequently in the New Testament than any other Old Testament book. Uh, this wonderful volume shows us how God is to be worshipped. And it, is re it repeatedly tells us of the final doom of the wicked, even though uh, in this life they seem to prosper. And it establishes a very helpful and personal look into the, the doubts, the fears, uh, the longings, the hopes, the joy, and the sorrows of the child of God. And so many students of the Bible have sought to establish a theme for the book of Psalms. And obviously that's always difficult to do, to do so. But it would be difficult to find a theme better than what we find in Psalm 29 verse 2, which says this, Give unto the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And so in this book of Psalms, God is to be approached for who He is and not for what we want Him to be. Uh, the Lord deserves the glory that, that is due unto His name. Uh, and we know, and we affirm this every time, there is no other God but the God of the Bible. And He is to be worshipped, the Bible says, in the beauty of holiness. Now as we go here, turn to the book of Psalms in chapter 1. We open with, and we're going to read the whole chapter here in just a moment, the whole psalm in just a moment. But as we begin here in this psalm, notice the first word. The first word says blessed or blessed. And so we open the book of Psalms, and I want us to think for just a moment, pretend we, we don't know any psalms, that this is the first time we read it. And so we open this, this volume, we open the psalm, and immediately we are met with an announcement. Blessed or blessed. Uh, and so that, that should, as we open this book, it should perk up uh, our attention. We should listen because I think everything in us wants to know what this blessedness is. 
Blessed? What, what is this? Blessed is the man. What is this blessedness? How is this blessedness attained? You see, everything in man wants to know in this life peace and joy uh, in this temporary and temporal life on earth. And assuming we know nothing of the remainder of this psalm, we might hope that nothing is required of us. We might hope that, oh, blessedness. Yes, wonderful, I want this blessedness, but I, I hope that there's nothing that is uh, too hard for us to, to think about or to dwell upon as we think about this blessedness. And by the way, such is the, the natural condition of man in the flesh. He wants blessedness. We want blessedness without any effort on our part. And blessedness is that which no doubt God gives freely, but it does require something of us. I want you to notice here, verse 1, let's read here this psalm. Verse 1, the Bible says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish." As we just kind of read through uh, this psalm, we think about the Bible. The first statement is, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. And notice here as we go to verse 2, he says, but his, that's the, the blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord. In verse 3, this blessed man, he shall be like a tree. And verse 4 says, the ungodly are not so. Not so like what? Not blessed. They're not blessed. And so blessedness is to be found here uh, in what a man, in verse 1, does not do, but it is also found in that which a man does. Uh, furthermore, the blessed man is likened to a tree in contrast to the chaff. Uh, you see, blessedness here is clearly, as we look through the psalm, blessedness is clearly a benefit of something else. Uh, in other words, what I'm saying before we begin the study of the psalm, uh, blessedness is not the goal. It's not the goal. But it is a benefit of something that we do. Uh, and so the psalmist here is not instructing us to make blessedness the goal of our lives. The psalmist is instructing us on what we must do that we might enjoy this blessedness. And so as we begin here in this first psalm, and by the way, it is appropriate for us to think about uh, the book of Psalms and to open with this first psalm. Uh, in other words, there's a reason why this is the first one. Perhaps is it that if we don't understand or get or allow the truth to sink in deep into our hearts of the first psalm, that perhaps we will not get the benefit from the entire book. Because in the first psalm, we find some fundamental truth about what it means to be a blessed man. As I begin in the study, um, I was hoping to deal with the entire psalm in the first study. And 
I began to uh, study, and we're going to deal with the first two verses, and then next week we're going to finish the psalm. Uh, because of what we find here in those first two psalms, and I, I'm going to give you a little warning. I, this is the first portion of Scripture that I memorized. I uh, still remember it to this day. I could quote it without uh, looking down. It's perhaps the passage of Scripture that I've, uh, now I haven't done this here, but throughout my life, that I've preached the most from, that I've studied the most from. And so before I came to the psalm, I thought to myself, God, I want you to, to uh, remove any preconceptions I've had thus far, and I want to see something fresh. And so I, I'm hoping to be able to communicate to you the things that God has given me that will be helpful truths from this first psalm. We're going to look at three things as we look at this psalm, and there's an evident break. There's really three parts to the psalm. We're going to deal with the first part tonight and the two subsequent parts next week. But we're going to look in verse 1 and 2 tonight at the contrast of blessedness. The contrast of blessedness. And we're going to see that verse 1 tells us what the blessed man does not do. And then verse 2, the contrast is what the blessed man does do. And so there's a contrast between the one, uh, the, what, the, what he does not do and what he does do. There is a, the, a negative description of the blessed man, but there's also a positive description of the blessed man. And then in verse 3 and 4, we're going to uh, take a look at the comparison of blessedness. And so he's going to move in verse 3 and 4, and he's going to, if you would, compare the blessed man to what? To a tree. That's what he's going to do in verse 3. That is planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. And then he's going to compare the ungodly to chaff. And so the ungodly is like chaff. The comparison is that the blessed man is like a tree, while the ungodly is like chaff. And then lastly, we'll look at the certitude of blessedness. And so tonight, let's look at the first uh, two verses and consider the contrast of blessedness. You see, the blessed man is first given a negative description, followed by a positive description. And by the way, when we think about blessedness, we have to recognize that both of those are necessary. In other words, when we think about the Christian life, there are things that we do not do, and there are yet things that we do. And uh, first, think about it, we are told what a blessed man does not do. And secondly, we are told what a blessed man does. And both of those are necessary for us to enjoy this blessedness that he's talking about. And so, uh, let, let us not deceive ourselves to think that we can both love the law of the Lord while also loving the counsel of the ungodly. It cannot happen. Uh, Let us not think that we uh, can stand in the way of sinners while also standing in the courts of the Lord. Uh, May we not be fooled to think that we can sit in the seat of the scornful while declaring that we are rejoicing in God. That cannot be. Uh, There is both a negative description 
of the blessed man, but there's also a positive description. And so uh, let's consider, first of all, the negative description of the blessed man. Now, when we think about, before we go into the details here, when we think about here, blessed is the man. We're talking about the blessing of God, this blessedness that we're talking about. Uh, What does that word mean? You know, if we think about, uh, well, uh, God bless you, we say that. We say, God bless you, what do we mean by that? And the truth is, when we think about blessing, it really means happiness, joyfulness, but it is really rooted in peace, knowing the peace of God. The psalmist uh, says that uh, perfect peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. And so when we think about the Word of God, there is when we think about blessedness, it is associated with, with peace in this present life. In other words, it is not circumstantial. And we can think about Job. When we think about Job, we, we might think in our minds, wow, look at the blessing upon his life. Look at his children and his houses and his possessions and his herds and his servants. And look at all those things And then when uh, all those things were taken away, would we dare say that he was no longer blessed of God? No, we wouldn't say that. Or uh, the Apostle Paul, when he had an infirmity in the flesh, when he had this weakness, and as he wrote to church, he said, when I came to you, I didn't come with my own power, I came in weakness. But yet, although he had an infirmity in the flesh, we would still say that he was blessed of God. You see, we live in the United States of America, and so we might associate the blessing of God upon our lives with material possessions. But the truth is, blessedness that we enjoy today is the same blessedness as we think about the Knickerbocker family uh, serving in Burkina Faso, which is one of the poorest countries in Africa. The people in the church in Burkina Faso can enjoy the same blessedness that we enjoy here in America. And it has nothing to do with our circumstances or possessions. So this, this uh, blessedness we're talking about is really having the favor of God upon us. Knowing the peace of God in our lives, having an enduring joy that is not connected to our circumstances. It's interesting that we read here in Psalm 1, the opening psalm says, Blessed is the man. Jesus Christ in His Sermon on the Mount, He began it the same way. Remember what He said? Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That was the first one. But each beatu began with blessed. What is it, this blessedness that that we uh, want to receive and that we want to know? As we begin here, we think about, first of all, we find a negative description. Now, as we think about that, notice, blessed is the man that walketh not. That is a negative. He does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Nor, negative, standeth in the way of sinners, nor, negative, sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. That is a positive, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. So we find here a negative, first of all, a negative description. There is an emphatic negative description. He does not walk, nor does he stand, nor does he sit. And the truth is, one cannot know this blessedness unless there are certain things that he forsakes in this life. Now, what are those things? Well, notice here there are three areas. 
Now, I'll, I'll mention those individually, and then we'll see how they're all connected. But notice, first of all, he forsakes the counsel of the ungodly, the blessed man, the one who knows uh, what it means to have the favor of God upon his life, the one who is, uh, does not have his peace and his joy robbed away from him despite difficulties and circumstances, the one who knows this blessedness, he forsakes the counsel of the ungodly. You see, the counsel of the ungodly is what? What is that? Well, that's really the opinions of men apart from God. Uh, we have lots of that around us. Uh, the counsel of the ungodly is really the opinions of men. Instead of his uh, steps being ordered by the Lord, his steps are guided by the counsel of the ungodly. You see, blessedness belongs to those who put ungodly counsel Far from them. Uh, you remember, uh, we, uh, there's uh, one proverb I perhaps mentioned when we went through the book. Proverbs 14, 12 and 16, 25 says this. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man. But the end thereof are the ways of death. And so this idea communicates that there is a way that seemeth right unto a man. And when we think about the world around us, that's exactly what we find in the world. There is a way that seems right unto a man where a man thinks by his own opinions, his own ideas, well, that sounds right. That's the world we live in. But by the way, it's always been that way. He says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Even in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, we are told not to lean on our own understanding. Uh, but rather, we are to acknowledge the Lord. That's what Proverbs 3, 5 tells us. It is a dangerous thing for a man to think himself to be wise in his own eyes. He is to fear the Lord. And so here he says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. He says, Beware of the man who will not humble himself to walk in the law of the Lord. Beware of the man who is ruled by his own counsel. The man who does not seek to be guided by the Lord is to be forsaken. And so blessedness will be found away from the man who forms his counsel apart from the law of God. That's where blessedness is found. And so if blessedness is found away from those who walk after the counsel of the ungodly, then I'm going to forsake that. I'm going to forsake the opinions of men. I'm going to forsake leaning on man's own understanding. I'm going to turn to the Lord. That's where blessedness is found. Uh, not only does he forsake, notice the counsel of the ungodly, but he goes uh, next step. He says, nor standeth in the way of sinners. And so here he not only forsakes the counsel of the ungodly, but he forsakes the way of sinners. Now, when we think here, um, nor standeth in the way of sinners, when we think about the word stand here, that's the word that I want us to think about. The word stand here is a strong word which means to abide, to endure, to be firm, to be fixed. That's what that word means. Therefore, the word stand refers to a man who will not be moved. It is someone who is immovable. Unmovable. Uh, the blessed man forsakes the company of sinners. He, he refuses to be entertained with them and by them. Instead, he chooses the company of the redeemed. 
Now, not the sinner, uh, sinners, but the redeemed. And so here, he first, notice here, the step, first step is there is the, the counsel. Don't uh, forsake the counsel of the ungodly, the opinions of men, those who lean on their own understanding and assuredly don't uh, go the next step and be found standing uh, firmly, unmovable in the way of sinners. Don't get to that place. And then thirdly, he says, forsake the seed of the scornful. Now, the word scornful literally means to make a mouth at. So it is someone who speaks a lot. This is the man who uses his mouth to scoff at God, to scoff at anything that is spiritual. In the general sense, the word scorner means literally teacher, interpreter, or ambassador. Psalm 26, verse 4 and 5 says, I have not sat with vain persons, neither will I go in with dissemblers, I have hated the congregation of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. You see, the blessed man, the Bible says, does not sit, but notice here what the Bible says, in the seat of the scornful. So you see what he means? He says, don't get to the place where you replace the scorner, where you become what he is. Now it's interesting because here the blessed man does not sit in the seat of the scornful. What is meant here by the seat of the scornful? Well, the seat is the place from which uh, the scorner teaches. Uh, Jesus Christ, when he spoke of the teaching influence of the scribes and the Pharisees, he said this in Matthew 23, verse 1 and 2, Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees uh, sit in Moses' seat. What was, he, what was he saying by saying that? He was saying, that's where they teach. They're the teachers. They, 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 when we think about the seat, it is the place where people are taught. And Jesus Christ said that the scribes and the Pharisees were sitting in Moses' seat. And so when we think about the progression, he says, uh, don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, don't stand in the way of sinners, and don't uh, sit in the seat of the scornful. And so here we find a progression in all of this. The progression is described of what the blessed man does not do. So notice, Step number one, I will call that we see his deception. He basically says, number one, don't be deceived. There's a warning. Notice he says, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. He does not say, blessed is the man that doesn't walk in the error or the evil of the ungodly. He says in the counsel. In other words, this, the idea is it may sound good. It may, it may sound like wise counsel. And so what does that tell us? That we can be deceived by that counsel. We may perceive that counsel not to be evil, not to be an error, and we may be deceived by it. And so here we see his deception. He says, don't be deceived. Step number two, we see his resolution. He says, nor standeth in the way of sinners. In other words, that's a decision that is made. Uh, because remember, the idea of standing is to be firm. To be unmovable. And so the one who takes the next step, he not only follows and listens to the counsel of the ungodly, but then as he listens to the counsel of the ungodly, he becomes unmovable in that counsel. And then he takes the step number three, which is he becomes the instructor. So in step one, his deception, you see the blessed man is not swayed by the opinions of men. He is not deceived by the counsel of the ungodly. You see, deception is where it all begins. 
By the way, the devil has always employed the tactic, uh, the tactic of deception from the very beginning. It is something that we are familiar with. He loves to deceive and the ungodly also loves to deceive. The counsel may seem grand, Amy seem good. We may even say something like this. It sounds right to me. Deception. So we see his deception. Secondly, we see his resolution. The man who is deceived by the counsel of the ungodly will soon find himself standing in the way of sinners. He will find that the opinions of men have now become his own. Have you ever had that happen to you and you didn't even realize it? Uh, where the influence have been so strong upon you that now the opinions of men, uh, men in their own understanding and their own opinions and counsel have become your own. He has learned here to stand firmly in this counsel and he is now living by such counsel. This is the man who resolves to join those who have counseled him. And then we see his instruction. So first his deception, his resolution, then his instruction. Naturally, the man who has first been deceived and made a decision to walk in, his, in this deception eventually will become an instructor of the same counsel. He will get to the place of sitting in the seat where he himself once received instruction. You see, each step will lead to greater degradation and shame. Now, I've said this before, but this is the negative description. This is what the blessed man does not do. He does not listen to the counsel of the ungodly. He does not stand in the way of sinners. He doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful. But then verse 2 says, but. Now let me pause before we go on and talk about the positive description. We must never be satisfied by negative purity. And what I mean by that is, sometimes we think ourselves to be more, most spiritual because, well, pastor, I don't do this and this and this and this, and that's what the world does, and, and pastor, I don't do those things. And I would say that that is a negative purity. Now, it is purity, but it is still negative. You see, the Christian life is not defined by negative purity. Uh, you see, rejoicing that we do not walk in the counsel of the ungodly and be satisfied with that. You see, blessedness cannot arise out of a negative life. It never does. It can only arise out of a positive life. Now, don't get me wrong. The negative needs to be taken out. But blessedness, in this contrast, he tells us blessedness is the man who doesn't do this, but then he says, blessedness is found in the man who does do this. And so it tells us that both are necessary in this contrast. There are, in the blessed life is the life where certain things are not present, but then there are other things that are present. So let's look here now. So we find the negative description of the blessed man, but then now we find a positive description of the blessed man. Notice verse 2, and we begin with, the, what's the first word of verse 2? But. So, but gives us a contrast. When we think about the blessed man, he does not do this, but 
He does do this. And those are at variance. They are a contrast. And so, but here gives us the contrast for the blessed man. There is a direct contrast to be made. In other words, we can make the direct contrast with verse 1. And what I mean by that is this. The blessed man, he does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. You know what that means? The direct contrast is the blessed man walks in the counsel of the godly. Right? That's a direct contrast. So, instead of him being deceived... What is the blessed man? He is submitted to the counsel of the godly. He's not deceived, he's submitted. Then, the second, we see that the blessed man, he says the negative is, nor standeth in the way of sinners. So that means that blessedness arises by the man who stands in the way of the righteous, who is firm there, who is settled, who is unmovable. That's a decision. That he makes. And then thirdly, the blessed man, here the negative is, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. That means that blessedness means it is the man who sits in the seat of the wise. And so there's a natural progression. Just like there's a natural degradation, you listen to the counsel of the ungodly, you stand in the way of sinners, and then you sit in the seat of the scornful. And so it is for the blessed life. It is the opposite. Uh, you see, you uh, hear, you submit to the counsel of the ungodly. Then you make a decision to stand in the way of the righteous. And then you become the instructor in the wisdom that you've received. It's progression either way. So that's a direct contrast. Now, there are two words that gives us a positive description of the blessed man. Now notice verse 2. There's really three parts to that. Notice, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. The first word is the word delight, and the second word is the word meditate. Now it is important at this time to see that verse 2, and this is where the Lord was showing me some things here, Verse 2 is not a command, but a description. Do you notice the language of verse 2? It's not, it, it's not a command, it's a description. Verse 2 does not tell us what needs to be, rather it tells us what is. Right? Now notice verse 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is... So there, there's not a, a direct command here to say, all right, I need to do this in order to have blessedness. No, it is describing what the blessed life is. It is not this, but it is this. You see? So verse 2 does not tell us what needs to be. Rather, it tells us what is. Blessedness is found in what is and not what needs to be. You see, blessedness, and here is where we, we need to learn something here, is that blessedness is the result of something else. That's why I said at the beginning, blessedness is not the goal. It's the benefit of something else. And so here he connects blessedness to what is not, but then to what is. So, Blessedness is found in what is, not what needs to be. Blessedness is the result of something else. Blessedness is not the outcome of what we do, but blessedness is present 
in what we do. Let me, let me say that again. I hope, I hope that comes across clearly. Blessedness is not the outcome of what we do. Blessedness is present in what we do. In other words, the, the, the proverb doesn't say, now, if you delight in the law of the Lord, and if you meditate therein day and night, then you will be blessed. As if blessedness is the result in the future of delighting and meditating, and then after you do that, then you get the blessedness. No, no, no. The idea of the psalm is that when you delight, that's where blessedness is. When you meditate, that's where blessedness is. And so in other words, it is a present thing. It's not something that is the result of something in the future. It is something that is enjoyed presently in this man. So, note the language again. Blessed is the man. His delight is in the law of the Lord. Notice, in his law doth he meditate day and night. And also, so he says, this continual blessedness, when it happens, it's when you are continually delighting in the law of the Lord and when you are continuing to meditate in it day and night. You see, blessedness always accompanies the man when he delights in the law of the Lord. And when he meditates in the law of the Lord day and night. You see, the moment that the man ceases to delight is the moment that the blessedness departs. The moment the man ceases to meditate is the moment this blessedness departs. Blessed is the man, his delight is. He doth meditate. So blessedness is part of the one who delights and meditates. So let's talk about those two things. And really there's three things we're going to see in verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in His law doth He meditate day and night. So notice, first of all, we see His delight. Now again, we're not chasing blessedness. We're not chasing joy, happiness. You see, that's what the world has all wrong. They have the banners, want to be happy? Do this. What do they make the goal? Happiness. You want to have joy? Do this. Buy this. Pursue this. And they say that if you do those things, then you will be happy. There is no such thing in the Christian life. You see, joy and happiness is a present possession of those who submit to God. But it is not what we chase after. It's what comes with. So, we see his delight. Now, delight communicates really two important aspects of the blessed man. When we think about the word delight here, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. When we think about delight, there's two aspects to delight. If you want to write those things down, I think they'll be helpful. First of all, the one who delights, first of all, he possesses a heart that loves God's word. That's what delight intimates. He possesses a heart that loves God's word. You see, the blessed man is the man who takes pleasure in the law of the Lord. He values the scriptures. He delights in God's word. It brings him joy. Uh, he, he, and by the way, uh, we know the Bible teaches that very clearly. You value what you love. 
So delighting is the reflection of a man's heart's condition. Delighting cannot be separated from the affection of the heart. And so the man who delights means that he possesses a heart that loves God's word. Psalm 119 verse 47 says this, And I will delight myself in thy commandments, which I have loved. Did you get that? I will delight myself in thy commandment, which I have loved. So, delighting, understand, is the man who possesses a heart of love for God's word. You see, my, he goes on to say, My hands also will I lift up unto thy commandments, which I have loved, and I will meditate in thy statutes. Psalm 119, verse 47 and 48. So we see here, when we think about, uh, what does it mean here? The blessed man is the one who delights in the law of the Lord. That means that he possesses a heart that loves God's word. That's delighting. And by the way, blessedness accompanies this delight. So, you want blessedness? Don't look for blessedness. Rekindle the delight. And the blessedness will come. So he possesses a heart that loves God, but, but then there's a, there's a second aspect really to this del- word delight. The first one is that he possesses a heart that loves God's word, but then he also possesses a desire to do God's will. You see, delighting also expresses a sincere desire to do the will of God. You see, a love for God's word is inevitably accompanied with a desire to do God's will. Psalm 40 verse 8 says this, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. Did you get the connection here? I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. So when we read here, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight. The man who possesses a love for God's word, and the man who possesses a desire to do God's will, that is the man who delights. And that is the man who has a blessedness that accompanies him. No doubt. So see, first of all, we see his delight, but then... So he, he delights in the law of the Lord, and notice, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. So first of all, we see his delight, but then we see his meditation. Now, meditation has really, I think, lost its meaning today. We might think that meditation is a place where you just get a mat out in your living room, and you cross your legs, put your fingers together, and just try to empty your mind of everything. That is not meditation. Meditation actually is the opposite of that. Meditation actually means to think. If you're trying to empty your mind of everything, you're not thinking. So, what is meditation? Well, to meditate is defined to mean this. Basically, it means having a close or a continued thought. It is the turning or the revolving of a subject in your mind. Now, uh, it could even mean serious contemplation. And when I mean contemplation, I'm not talking about, you know, imagining things. I'm saying you're, you're contemplating, musing, thinking about certain things, specific things. Now, 
The word meditate is, is neither uh, positive or negative. In other words, it means that uh, when you meditate on something, it means that it's always before you. So it could be bad if you think about something that is bad and you meditate on it, you always bring it up before you. That not, that's not necessarily good. Uh, Philippians says, be careful for nothing. What does that word mean? Full of care. So you're always thinking about bad things in your life. You're full of care. And you're, you're musing on those things. You're thinking on those things. You're meditating on those, those things. That's not healthy. But that's not what he's talking about. He's, he's talking about meditating in the law of the Lord. And so it means that you do not live without this being part of your life. Meditating. That's what it means. It's always before you. Uh, so meditation can be good or bad depending on what you remain focused on. Now, Bartholomew asked what he wrote this. He says, meditation chews the cud and gets the sweetness and nutritive vir virtue of the word into the heart and life. This is the way the godly brings much fruit. Uh, so it's the idea of when you think about often it's referring to the chewing the cud where, uh, you know, the cows, they uh, chewing the cud is the idea of you, they eat, they get all the nutrients, they swallow it, and then they regurgitate back in their mouth, they bring it up, and then they do that process. What are they trying to get? They're trying to get all of the nutrition out of the food so that it affects their body for good. So what is Meditation. When it connects to the Word of God is to try to get everything good out of it that is beneficial for your life. So it has to be before you. Psalm 119 verse 97 says, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Though through thy commandments hast made me wiser than mine enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. Now, this is not boasting, saying that, oh, I have more wisdom than all my teachers. What is he saying? He says, for thy testimonies, God's testimonies are my meditation. And notice, he didn't say here, again, I'm smarter than my teachers. He said, I'm wiser. Important. It's not bringing down his teachers. It's saying that wisdom is connected to God. And meditation on the testimonies of God, uh, you find, uh, produce wisdom in his life. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.15, he says, Meditate upon these things, give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. And so, you think about meditation, you think that giving yourself wholly to something. Always having this before you. And by the way, uh, that, that, that takes time and purposefulness to do that in your life. Purposefulness. Why? But what we, 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 you know what we tend to think on. It's the end of the world. Everything's bad. The gas prices, everything, it's, it's all going to be over. Destruction, misery, sadness, sorrow. We tend to think that way. And we often neglect the blessedness that accompanies those who meditate in the law of the Lord. You know how to cure a lot of the sickness and the worry in the world? Right here. Meditating in this book. You see, meditation is really an insight into the heart 
of man. Psalm 19 verse 14 said, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. See, meditation is a heart thing. Be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Uh, Thomas Watson, he said this, Meditation is the touchstone of a Christian. It shows what metal he is made of. It is a spiritual index. The index shows what it is, what is in the book, so meditation shows what is in the heart. But there's another thing we find here in verse 2. We not only see that his delight... We see his meditation, but then thirdly, we see his seasons. Notice what he says in verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. So I studied the psalm before, and I preached. I was, I, I, I was thinking, you know, my mind thinking about, yeah, well, you know, morning you get up, and you get in the Word of God, and you think about it through the day, and then in the evening you... You know, you think about it before you go to bed, and then you go to bed. But here he says that it is supposed to be meditate day and night. There is, he doesn't say evening, he says night. You see, there is an application here that needs to be made. We know that during the night, most people will usually be found sleeping. Correct? Right? Amen? Okay. I do not think that the application is for us to meditate while we sleep. That's quite impossible. Rather, the word can be understood as season. A season. In other words, there's, a, there's the season of the day and there's the season of the night. You see, the day is understood as a time when we might uh, perceive that our life is good and well and that God is, it can be praised during the day season. The night can also be understood when we are in the dark season of life. Uh, the night may be seen as the time of affliction or trouble or persecution or sorrow. For example, Job, in Job 30, verse 17, he says, My bones are pierced in me in the night season, and my sinew take no rest. What was he saying? He says, I, I used to have the blessing of God in my life. I used to have health and possessions and children. But then the night season came. And when the night season came, I found myself, my, my bones are pierced in me. And so he's, he's talking about the season of his life. He's in the night now, just like the psalmist. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. He was not talking about physical death here. Now I know it's... We're talking about funerals, but he's talking about the valley of the shadow of death. When everything is dark, when you can't see clearly, when the circumstances are affecting you negatively, that is the night season. Psalm 119 verse 92 says this, Unless thy law had been my delight, I should then have perished in my affliction. What does he say? He says, God, unless I had found a way to delight in your law, uh, during my time of affliction, during my time of the night season, then I would have perished. But because I delighted in thy law, you preserved me in my affliction. You see, while the word of God causes us to praise him in the day, the same word brings us comfort in the night. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this, he says, Our worst things are often our best things. As there is a curse wrapped up in the wicked man's mercies, 
So there is a blessing concealed in the righteous man's crosses, losses, and sorrows. The trials of the saints are a divine husbandry by which he grows and brings forth abundant fruit. What is he saying? When the Bible says, In his law doth he meditate day and night. He delights in the law of the Lord. He meditates in it. Notice, day and night, that means during the good. You see, he turns to the word of God, and when things are good in his life, he can praise God. He can say, God, you're wonderful. You're merciful. You're good. And and the goodness of God leads us to repentance. But then when comes the night, he also, he says, I'm going to learn to delight and to meditate, not just in the day, but also in the night season. And so in the, in the word where I used to found praise, where I used to praise your name and lift up your name, the same word is going to give me comfort and is going to preserve me in the hour of darkness. My friend, that is Blessedness. Blessedness is not connected to our circumstances. It's when the child of God knows what it means to praise God in the day and to rejoice in God in the night. But that only happens when he delights and meditates. It is assured that if we've learned to delight and to meditate in the day, we will automatically learn to delight and meditate in the night. Why? Because the day prepares us for the night. So as we read this psalm, verse 1 and 2 says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. We're going to look at next week, but notice, I want to connect there with the end of verse 3. He says, He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither. And notice, And whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Well, there's plenty of examples in the Bible where we find that, you know, you remember God told Abraham, arise out of that country, and then he says, I'm going to bless you, and then he he got uh, to uh, the land, he got there, and you remember what happened? Famine. Well, wait! God, I I thought you were going to bless me! I I thought you said, I will bless you. And indeed all families of the earth will be blessed. And and, uh, this is going to be your land. And I I go to the land that now there's a famine. You see, blessedness is not the absence of the famine. That's not what blessedness is. Blessedness is the presence of God. The favor of God upon our lives, no matter what our circumstances are. Blessedness is not something we run after. It is the benefit of those. As we think about delight, in the word delight, it is the benefit of those or, the, uh, or what accompanies those who possess a heart of love for God's word and those who possess a desire to do His will and who throughout their lives who always bring back by meditation bring back and ever live before the law of God continually. 
You see, blessedness will be present with those who delight in the law of the Lord and meditate therein day and night. So whether it's the day or the night season, they enjoy the blessedness of God. You see, it's very important for us as Christians to, to understand this truth. Now we're going to look next week at the comparison of the blessed man. So what is the blessed man like? Well, he tells us he is like a tree. Like a tree. Planted by the rivers of water. Now I'll give you just an insight to connect with the message. I never saw this, but verse 3 it says, Like a tree planted by the rivers. Now we might think, well, one river is enough, isn't it? Why do you need rivers? Well, perhaps is it that when one river dries out, there's another one that comes? When another one dries out, then there's another one that comes? It's, in other words, it's a continual river. In other words, it, it accompanies the idea of seasons of life. There may, there may be something that, that really uh, God blesses you with and it's encouraging you and carrying you through and, and then that, that dries up over here. And, and then, but then there's another river that comes. In other words, whatever happens in our life, if we stay focused on delighting in the law of the Lord and on meditating it, no matter what the seasons of our lives are, we're going to find a multitude of rivers ever flowing beside us because we are exactly in the place where God wants us to be, no matter what our circumstances are. And so may the Lord help us to take to heart of those truths. You say, all right, Pastor, what's the point of the message? Forget about blessedness. Focus on delighting in the law of the Lord and meditating in it day and night. And when you do that, blessedness will come with it. With it. Not after it. You're going to find... And you read many biographies of Christians and missionaries, they'll, they'll all say the same thing. When the difficulty presents itself, they lean on God, continue to delight in God, meditate on the law of the Lord, and then God in those difficulties gives them the blessedness. And then when the circumstances, the difficult circumstances are past, they still have this blessedness. Why? Because they learn to do this Continually, And so, may the Lord help us. Uh, by the way, it would do us good. We, we are in church. We encourage each other in church. It's a wonderful thing. But we all have to learn to live by this blessedness every day. There's certainly, there's truth that we come to church and we get blessed. We get encouraged. We get strengthened by our fellow believers. But we can't have church every day. Maybe we should have church every day. But the point is, we can know the blessedness of God by being in communion and fellowship with God. And so may the Lord help us with that.